Bringing back manufacturing to the United States can be a difficult proposition, but getting out of China isn't so easy either. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. The talk of reshoring manufacturing to the U.S. from China tends to focus on the hurdles that companies face on this side of the Pacific. Infrastructure, real estate, labor costs, proximity to multiple tiers of suppliers. What's often overlooked are the complexities of leaving China. What happens to the equipment and intellectual property that gets left behind? What kinds of financial penalties do companies face? And can they ever go back? We get answers to these questions from my guest today as we welcome back Rosemary Coates, founder and executive director of the Reshoring Institute and president of Blue Silk Consulting. We'll also talk about whether COVID-19 is the tipping point that will finally entice manufacturers to reshore production in North America and how their decision might be influenced, if at all, by President Biden's Buy American initiative. Here is my conversation with Rosemary Coates. Rosemary Coates, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be back. As we continue this long-running conversation about reshoring and manufacturing from Asia back to the United States, it's good to have you back. Now, as founder and executive director of the Reshoring Institute, you are a longtime proponent of the concept of moving production back to the United States, but you are also a realist, certainly cognizant of the complexities and complications of making that effort. So that's what I want to talk to you about today, this notion that leaving China is not as easy as you think, how to extricate yourself from China and the considerations you need to be thinking about. So tell me, what is top of mind? When we talk about unexpected costs, liabilities, and issues, what is maybe the first thing we need to think about that a company needs to consider if it wants to get out of China and get back to the United States? It's not simply a matter of, do I stay or do I go? Really, these days, our clients are thinking much more strategically about global manufacturing strategy. And by that, I mean, where in the world should they be manufacturing? Should they keep some manufacturing in China? Should they move some to Mexico? Should they hopefully bring some back to the U.S.? So it's Mm -hmm. a little bit more complicated than that. When you're looking at the total cost also, and, and as you mentioned, it's very risky leaving China, you have to consider some things that I think either haven't been taken into consideration in the past or just companies don't know about it. So let's take, for example, the molds and tools and dyes that you may have sent over there. You have your name stamped on them. There's probably a plate on it that says it's property of your company. You've written that into the agreement and you send a mold to China and they use it for production. Then you decide to leave. Well, I got news for you. (laughs) That Mm. mold is not coming back, even if you think that you own it. And part of the reason is because when you ship things like that, tooling and equipment and molds and things that are going to become part of the production at the factory, the Chinese look at that as being part of their infrastructure. So you've helped them build their manufacturing site and they are not letting go. The other thing is if it has 
anything at all to do with technology, the Chinese government is not going to let it out of China. I've had to have this tough conversation with CFOs a couple of times saying, you're not getting that stuff back. You've got to write it off. And then, of course, with the production people to find a new mold maker, some way of reproducing the molds that you thought you were going to get back. And so there's some difficulty and cost there and also an opportunity to redesign things. So you shouldn't look at it as being just all bad, but maybe an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Let's stick with that one for a moment. I know there are several other things we want to talk about, but to the extent, as you mentioned, that the mold might have your name on it, it might be a unique design of yours, it might be personalized. You don't want somebody coming in and using those molds, would you destroy them? What would you do in order to protect your own identity, your own unique product? There are ways, if you think about it in advance, and you get some legal help in advance of locking that down, getting the company to agree that as soon as they're finished with production of that, they will ship the item back. But you have to get very specific about it. It isn't good enough to just put your name on it. Mm -hmm. And you're right. So not only have you offered a production component that's necessary for producing your goods, but you've also taught the factory overseas how to make your product. They know who your suppliers are because you're shipping them to their factory. They understand your production methodologies and they have your tools and dyes. They're not going to like go to sleep at night and forget how to make your product. They're going to come into the factory the next morning and continue to produce the same product and probably relabel it under a number, a a similar label or a different kind of uh, title on it. Then you're going to find yourself competing with your own products on the the world market. So it's it's scary. I mean, so many companies don't think about these things in advance, but you, you have to if you're going to go to an overseas location. you got to be smart about it and prepare mm-hmm. in advance. And then there's a the larger issue of IP, of intellectual property, of which some of this we've already discussed, but the larger issues of technology and the like, that's stuck in China forever too, to a certain extent, right? Yeah. So IP is with respect to designs, and patents, copyrights, trademarks, all those things are part of your IP. And you can patent things and trademark them in China if someone hasn't already done that without your knowing. You can do that to help with the protection, but keep in mind that the methodology for producing your product, the standards, the methodologies, the approach, all of that is also intellectual property. And you've transferred it already, so there's no way of getting that back. I mean, once you've taught the Chinese or other foreign companies to produce your product, they know how to do it and they're going to continue to do it. You get stuck in this loop of IP problems and IP protection all over the place, unless, of course, you're manufacturing in the U.S. And then you have not only our legal protection, but you don't have to worry about the global aspects of it. You could, of course, argue that in this this area, any country other than the United States like, for instance, countries in Southeast Asia, to which some manufacturers are supposedly shifting, would present the same issues. That's absolutely true. The same issues are all over the place. It's just that China has become a particularly onerous place because they have so much manufacturing there and because so much of our IP has been transferred there. So that's a particular worry. But you're right. It's a global worry, and you have to be smart about it when you're shifting production to an overseas location. 
Well, I do a lot of expert witness work. And in a lot of the lawsuits, we're dealing with these kind of issues where the company continues to produce counterfeit goods or you can't get your machinery back from overseas or there's all kinds of issues out there. And I think it behooves most companies to think through this in advance, maybe get the help of an attorney to think through what issues there are, what risks you're taking before you ever move overseas. So we've been talking so far about inanimate objects and technology. What about people? Are there issues with regard to employee contracts that need to be addressed in order to leave China? Here's a big surprise for a lot of companies. So Chinese employees are on contracts. And so if they come to work in your factory in China, they typically sign a one-year or two-year contract. And it's very favorable on the employee side. So the employee can quit with notice and walk away, and there's no problem there. However, if you decide to shut down your plant, or maybe even you're going to shut down a product line and need to lay off some of the workers, you have to pay them out to the end of their contract. It could be you hired them two months ago and they have a two-year contract. You have to pay the full two years in terms of salary. It may not be so bad if it's only one employee, but if you've got 20 or 50 or 100 employees, then it's going to be a big financial hit. And that's another one of those pitfalls that companies don't realize until it's too late. Now they're trying to get out. Now they've got employment contracts and employees that are disgruntled because they got laid off. There are all kinds of issues with that. Once again, Mm -hmm. uh, thinking about it in advance is important. Does such issues arise when you're using the services of a large contract manufacturer? Uh, I would assume that those are their employees in some cases. That's true. As a general rule, if you're only sourcing in China or you're using EMS, electronics manufacturer, or a contract manufacturer, you have less exposure or risk, but don't make any assumptions. I mean, when you're in a foreign location, particularly in China, there's a heavy protection for employees, and you may get yourself involved in some legal case because of that. So it's it's just more important to go in with your eyes open, to get good counsel regarding what the pitfalls may be before you make that decision. What about monetary considerations, taxes, penalties, and things like that? What what do companies need to be thinking about in that area? The Chinese government is trying to protect their manufacturing profile. As I'm sure you're aware, there's a downturn in people and companies going to China to manufacture. And a lot of companies are considering alternate locations like Vietnam or uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, Mexico, other places instead of China. So China's trying to hold on to as much manufacturing as it can. And so when a company decides to leave China, there are all these sort of flaming hoops you have to jump through (laughs) to make it happen. One of them is a payment for an exit permit. So you have to apply to leave China. So it isn't just like you can quit and say, okay, we're going to lock the doors, turn off the lights and get on a plane and leave. You have to apply for that exit permit, and sometimes that is costly, and it can take six months before it's approved. That's certainly one. You may have to pay export taxes if you're bringing anything out. So these are all considerations that lots of companies don't know about or don't think about before they decide to leave. What happens if you refuse or just don't pay those those fees? How can 
trying to punish you or, or impose penalties for that. I know of a couple of clients that just shut down and got on a plane and left. As a result, they got banned from China. So you will never get another visa to go back to China, to be able to work in China or to establish operations there. And that's not a good idea, especially considering the global landscape in Asia overall is growing about 14% per year. And there's obviously a huge uptick in the middle class across Asia who demand products now. And it's a huge growth market. Any company that's considering leaving should think about that growth market in terms of should they leave some manufacturing there? Should they be careful when they're exiting so that they don't shoot themselves in the foot by not being able to ever come back. It's really thinking of the shifting landscape of manufacturing around the world. You have to be quite savvy and consider all the aspects of it before you go there and certainly before you leave. Have we covered the high points or the main considerations? Anything else to think about? I think that's pretty much the high points. I would certainly encourage manufacturers to consider the possibility of manufacturing in the U.S. or at the very least in Mexico to take advantage of USMCA. But bringing manufacturing into proximity of the major market or into back into the U.S. is, of course, our goal and I think is a winning strategy for everyone. And as you point out, Rosemary, it isn't an either-or situation that global supply chains are quite complex and can source in multiple places. Maybe some aspect of it is reshored. Maybe some stays in China. Maybe some goes to Southeast Asia. That's not an uncommon move for companies today, right? Yeah, that's the evolution of what's happening in manufacturing now. It used to be we manufactured in the U.S. and then we went global and we ship overseas and then we started manufacturing in China. And so it was uh, sort of sequential. These days, this is a, a sophisticated global modeling activity where you determine where in the world is the best place to manufacture and why, and how does that meet the markets in those areas. What I've seen over the past 20 years or so is a significant shift in analytical thought and examination of the proper places in the world to manufacture, to take advantage of markets and economics and and so forth. I mean, it's really a far more sophisticated decision than it was 20 years ago. And yet at the same time, we have the Biden administration's Buy American policies. Are those a strong incentive? Do you think that that will actually lead to a certain amount of reshoring that might not have happened otherwise? Absolutely. And I think it's happening already. It's putting more emphasis on buying American and manufacturing here is very important. And Biden has definitely set that direction by doing things like increasing the amount of U.S. originated components and materials for government purchases. Right now it's at 55% and there's a pathway to get all the way up to 75% of the content must be U.S. originated. That's a huge jump. I mean, it doesn't sound like much, but it is. Another sighting is Thomas.net, which is the go-to place for sourcing products in the U.S. They did a study a couple of months ago and pointed out that 10 or 11% of U.S. industrial buyers say they're going to buy more in the U.S. starting this year, up to about 10 or 11% of, of the total that they buy would be placed in the U.S. And mm-hmm. that translates to something like $433 billion. Do you know what their reasons might be? 
I think it's a, just a general movement towards considering manufacturing in the U.S. I think it's, in some cases, some incentives. It is certainly to do with increasing costs in foreign locations and logistics costs that, of course, are through the roof. And when you make an economic comparison, it just doesn't make sense to go overseas anymore. Do you think we learned some lessons from the pandemic and the resulting shortages of product that resulted from the disruption of long supply chains, such as those from Asia? Absolutely. The Tax Reform Act of 2017 and the tariffs, the Chinese penalty tariffs and the aluminum and steel tariffs, all those things were supposed to drive all this manufacturing back to America. And really, they didn't do much of anything. But the pandemic introduced risk into supply chains. And with that risk came sort of an eye-opening event that made companies, I think, rethink their global strategies and understand where they had vulnerabilities in their supply chains and in their global manufacturing. And that indeed has caused a rise in reshoring. I know anecdotally, at least, we are very busy at the Reshoring Institute helping all kinds of customers with identifying supply bases in the U.S., as well as site locations, as well as extracting themselves from China, trade regulations, all of that. You think that companies are acquiring a more sophisticated idea of what constitutes total supply chain costs, which would enable them to not just make labor comparisons, for instance, but put in other criteria as well? Yeah, so TCO modeling has been around for a long time. And I hate to use generic models because they just don't work for everyone. So when we do a TCO model, we start with some basic attributes and ideas, and then we customize it for each of our clients. And the TCO model, of course, is the basic starting point. It's the economic starting point, but it's not the whole decision. In addition to TCO, you need to look at market growth, availability, the labor availability, all these things in the future that you can't model in a TCO. So it's a good starting place. Obviously, businesses start with economics first. So they start with the cost structures first, but that's certainly not all of the decision. It's maybe less than half. We've talked here about these some very serious considerations that companies need to take into account simply to get out of China if they so desire to do so. And yet you seem to be implying that those ultimately are not a barrier to making the move if necessary. Would you say that you're optimistic despite these very big challenges? I am always optimistic. We're working hard to bring manufacturing, reestablish it, expand manufacturing in the U.S., and attract foreign direct investment to manufacture here. So these are all components of what we try to do. Every day, the business environment changes. So we know some basic fundamentals, but you have to understand what's happening today. So right now, of course, we're heavily focused on logistics costs. In fact, I have a client that told me that they are paying 17 times more for logistics from China, logistics costs from China, than they were two years ago. 17 times. I'm like, holy cow, really? Oh boy, yeah. I, I, I couldn't believe it. But that's a business consideration we didn't see coming. And it probably will resolve over the next year or so. They're dealing with a lot of problems of the moment. And yet an actual reshoring effort is a long-term play. It can take years to move your, your facilities and manufacturing. Can it not? And does that stop companies from making moves because it is such a, a lengthy process? That's what I was saying before. I mean, I think supply chains were both focused on execution in the past. So how do I 
make things and move them around the world. Today's decisions are much more strategic in nature. There's geopolitical considerations. There's the economics, of course, of it. There is growth markets, opportunities. There's there's so much more that goes into the decision. And that means that more of the decisions are made at a strategic level in an organization, a senior level, a CXO level, instead of at the supply chain director's level, right? So, I mean, it's really, we have now two sides of the coin. The execution side is where you make stuff happen. You manufacture and you ship things and you address customer needs. And then you have the strategy side, which is planning for the future. That combination creates a a lot more complexity to the decision, but also clarity in a certain respect, because you know where you're going or you want to go in the future. Complexity indeed. Rosemary Coates of the Reshoring Institute and Blue Silk Consulting, always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. That was my conversation with Rosemary Coates of the Reshoring Institute, talking about the complexities of shifting manufacturing out of China. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. And also watch videos on our YouTube channel. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time.